Happy holidays, folks. Welcome to Agency Unfiltered, the HubSpot Solutions Partner Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Dunn, and Agency Unfiltered is a weekly web series and podcast that interviews owners, founders, and executives of agencies and services providers from around the world about whatever it takes to grow and scale. Episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. This week, we have on Phil Valander, Director of Blend Marketing. Phil's here to talk about changing B2B buyer preferences and his team's method for adapting. As Phil notes, buyers are attempting to remain as anonymous as possible with a strong partiality for data privacy, uh, the avoidance of cold calls and spam messages, and a general disinterest in a seller's lead nurturing events. And this feels like the result of the crisis of disconnection spoken to at Inbound, sparked by channel saturation, inbound commoditization, and diminishing return on traditional marketing and sales tactics. So Phil offers his read on changing preferences and what his team does to enable buyers to self-serve through the buyer's journey and what this means for his team's go-to-market and the approach to inbound for themselves and their clients, a strategy he's coined inbound demand generation. So Phil explains inbound demand gen at the tactical level and what it means for the deployment of HubSpot and the associated strategies executed within. And specifically, Phil shares how the HubSpot CMS can be such an impactful tool to account for and align with this shift to yield positive results. Happy holidays and happy new year from Agency Unfiltered. Hey, Phil. Welcome to Agency Unfiltered. How you doing? Hi. Doing well. Good to see you. Uh, good to see you as well. Uh, uh, an episode that's been long uh, ruminating, if that's the appropriate word. Uh, I think we planted the seed for this conversation at Inbound. It's great to finally get you uh, on the podcast. Excited to talk to you. Uh, likewise. Likewise. If, if, we're, if we're having this conversation around the same time that I hope this episode goes out, happy holidays to you and obviously all of our listeners as well. Indeed, hold this room, Bill. Uh, what we're here to talk about today? Um, well, uh, uh, sounds like consumer preferences have been changing, uh, and you know, I feel like uh, inbound marketers uh, in our ecosystem, we've said that a handful of times. Um, but I think what's great is that you have the evidence to back up what you are seeing as it relates to consumer preferences being uh, changing. Uh, and it sounds like you've also operationalized some things to meet those prospects, consumers, buyers to where they are and where and how their preferences now manifest uh, in the purchasing cycle. Um, so we'll, we'll extrapolate all of that and more, I would think, over this episode. But let's just start with maybe the easiest question or like the most simplest, you know, the most simplistic way to, to, to tackle this. How have B2B buyer preferences changed? They've changed in a number of ways, of course, uh, as is inevitable. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the goals and objectives that Blends always had is to create a, a service for B2B companies, predominantly tech ones, that has a really reliable, desirable, measurable outcome. So we've always been um, focused on really seeing what the data we get back from our customers' programs tells us and trying mm -hmm. to be alive to what it shows and, and adapt to it. And the changes that we're seeing, you know, 
grow and grow are changes that have been going on for some time already. And it's that buyers are increasingly staying out of your lead pool fundamentally. Mm. And a lot of marketing programs are geared around lead generation and, and, and leads yeah. were seen as kind of the holy grail for marketing for a while because they were tangible, measurable. You could contact them, reach out and touch them. But of course, that led to some marketing behaviors that are now, you know, highly predictable, not necessarily enjoyable from the buyer's perspective. And therefore, those buyers are getting better and better at avoiding the situations that lead mm. to lead nurturing email, LinkedIn in-mails, cold calls from SDRs, and so on. And so if your buyers are taking steps to avoid being on the receiving end of those things, it means they're not entering your lead pool in the first place. They're staying anonymous as long as they possibly can until they're basically ready to purchase from you as a result of whatever other research, word of mouth, uh, affinity they've developed. Um, and your lead nurturing is going to be falling mostly on deaf ears because the people in that pool don't represent your ideal customer, your buyer, um, you know, to, to any great extent. And in, in many of the programs that we've overseen and that we've encountered, the lead pool and the buyers are almost completely separate cohorts, you know, very yeah. little intersection and overlap. And so that basically necessitates a change to the way that we market. Um, and it's growing. It, it's increasing all the time. There's a there's a bunch of stuff that I want to pick out of there uh, that that feels so important. First off, love the framing of hey, you know, our engagements, our service offering is built on this idea of being reliable and measurable. First off, love that framing. Um, but uh, as you've mentioned, it buyers, B two B buyers, they're uh, no longer uh, falling into our lead pool as they have done historically, and that's by design in their eyes. That's intentional, right? They're Absolutely. they're trying to put things into practice to remain as anonymous as possible, uh, which I guess, you know, uh, when I put every, when I put my buyer hat on, I think I tend to do the same, right? Right. You yeah, mentioned now too, yeah, right, uh, that, that now that those primary buyers are out of your lead pool, those that are in your lead pool aren't even necessarily the right target audience, right? So it's not even, are you not capturing, right, the right leads that you'd want, but those that come in uh, are, are likely not performing as well because they're not your ideal client profile anymore, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Let me ask you this. Is what you're seeing here, right, avoidance uh, of marketing engagements, uh, trying to avoid the cold call, the spam, the LinkedIn DMs, or whatever that follow-up looks like, uh, is that happening more uh, faster for certain types of businesses or certain types of regions? Or is this something that you're seeing just, you know, more generally, more broadly across B2B sales? So, I think it applies broadly. Um, I rarely, if ever, have conversations that indicate it isn't perceived to some degree universally. Sure, sure. But, yeah. but our experience, you know, is definitely um, focused on B2B, as we've discussed, and, and within B2B, more towards the traditionally personally sold complex, more costly offering, although I think mm -hmm. in SaaS... I, um, our data would probably indicate the same behaviors largely at play. And predominantly, the experience we have is in Europe, although we do serve mm -hmm. customers who experience the same things in North America, Australia, Northern Europe, and so on. But definitely, the data we have, the experiences we have, show us that it's prevalent within European B2B markets, to say the least. Yeah. 
No, that's fair. But I mean, you're like, yeah, my working hypothesis though here is that uh, yeah, it also applies more broadly. Is there for for Europe specific? Sorry, Phil, did I cut you off there? Well, I just think that as you as you indicated, markets move at different rates depending on the business culture, the geography, you know, and many other factors. So I suspect suspect that Europe may be further down this journey than mm-hmm. say North America, Australia, but they're probably coming along behind. Yeah. I mean, is this a ripple effect of, I feel like Europe is ahead of the curve in regards to like data production and privacy regulations? Is that, you know what I mean? Is this, is this kind of a, a trickle down effect of some of those, you know, measures? I suspect laws or, you know. those are absolutely factors. You know, ultimately, if attitudes towards data collection and use change, and that affects a lot of marketing plays these days. Um, also, sort of uh, business culture and investment culture is very different in different parts of the world. So the way that you build a business successfully or the way that, you know, people think of success is very different here and in the UK to certain other markets. And I think that also drives the makeup of your business. For example, you know, if you've got a large, hungry SDR team, then lead generation may be looked upon very positively, very fondly, because you've got to feed them with names and numbers. But if you're operating without that sort of function, you know, you're definitely probably uh, perceiving that leads to lead to customer conversion rate is a a hard fought battle and, and getting harder. Um, well, let me ask you this. You'd mentioned too, lead gen for a lot of inbound engagements for a lot of customers. That's the engine, right? That's yeah. going to fuel all of the other uh, uh, campaigns and strategies and things to drive revenue for the business. And uh, it's getting more difficult to actually grow the pool, especially with the right folks that you'd want in that lead gen pool. Uh, so how is Blend uh, yourself, but also uh, for your clients, customers as well, how are you, uh, uh, you know, rethinking these go-to-market strategies, these inbound engagements uh, in order to, you know, properly reflect the change we're seeing here? We're, yeah, that's a great question. So what we noticed some time ago already was that a lot of the behaviors, inbound particularly, that produce um, higher volumes of leads correlated with higher volumes of buyers just appearing at the end of their purchase decision-making process, raising their Mm. hand, expressing their interest. So there's some relationship between those two sort of uh, metrics, but they're not connected. We we, we saw that it was very, very hard to nurture a lead into becoming a buyer, but the buyers appeared nonetheless. So we Mm. started to take a more holistic look at the buyer journey um, and also use our own sort of, as you mentioned, our own behavior as a very, very good example of this. And say, well, if the buyer is going to avoid entering this lead pool so that they don't get nurtured, they don't get scored, they don't get spammed effectively, you know, but they're still showing up, what are the things that are having an effect on who shows up and how many of them appear? And ultimately, it's that whole customer journey without attempt to turn someone into a known contactable lead at a very early stage, but to create an experience for them all the way from first discovery through to decision that is effective. And a huge part of that is the website user experience message content um, as part of that buying journey. Mm -hmm. And that plus a lot of the inbound tactics that we know and love can work really well together at increasing the number of people that ultimately enter your pipeline. 
That's super interesting. So, Phils, what what it sounds like is so you have you know the inbound engagement or you know your 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 strategies here, uh, and you know over time, sure, the uh, leads that you have in your pool can be nurtured through to buyers or closed one sales deals or whatever it might be. But you're mentioning too that even outside of that, uh, a really well run inbound campaign or strategy would correlate to hand raises at the end of your funnel, right? Or at the end of your, you know, process, uh, even if those weren't the contacts that were being engaged with through your marketing team or that you had the data for, is that fair? So those are the ones that are successfully like the shadow leads. They're successfully remaining anonymous, but they're still engaging with and show interest in at the end of the purchasing this like process. Yeah. Or, you know, prospecting or or lead, you know, process, if that makes sense. Exactly. Because, Within an inbound lead gen program, you're still only going to gate some of your content. Now, your buyers, unfortunately, are not likely to see that content, but they're still able to engage with your brand in other ways. And, you know, if you're doing inbound, then you're still valuing and prioritizing education and the giving of of information freely. But if you ungate that content and you step away from the lead gen model, more towards Mm -hmm. what we're calling demand generation, then you can show all of your expertise, all of your credibility and capability to your buyers without them having to convert. And that will ultimately drive up the number of opportunities you generate from an inbound approach. So this boils down uh, to two things you mentioned. Well, you have to go from lead generation to demand generation. Um, but then you also highlighted <clears throat> briefly there, and I, I want to pull this thread, but just the, the role that the website must play in this updated go-to-market, this demand gen strategy. And it comes down to the messaging and the content within. And so to go from lead gen to demand gen, is it fair to say that you have to enable these uh, buyers or prospects as uh, you know self-serving? They want to self-serve into the material uh, and content and enablement education that they're going to find most valuable. Is that the, is that the root yeah. of this? Absolutely. Um, I don't think it will come as a surprise to anybody, but it's often overlooked that a lot of B2B decisions are made solely on the basis of the website that describes the product or service being offered. How people get there, there are lots of different approaches, tactics, strategies, and plays for that. But if the website fails to turn their early interest into an opportunity, then nothing else really matters because you're going to be dropping the opportunities that you you could be generating. So website user experience as the sort of end of the purchase making process is really critical. Get people there via your chosen strategy. Our preferred one is inbound demand generation and then show them clearly, intuitively, effectively how your offering solves their problems and you can generate pipeline through a self-serve online inbound mechanism. And so I love that. What does a demand gen service offering look like through the lens of, we'll start with the website. So you had mentioned messaging and content. You also mentioned, well, that the, you know, the, the user experience, the UX has to be top notch. What does the consultancy and what do the services look like to get uh, one of your clients uh, in a spot, in a place where their website is optimal for a demand gen you know, strategy? So there's a lot of things that go into that, Um, you know, not least the technology that underpins said website. Ultimately, do you have any preferences on CMS technology by chance? So absolutely. Ultimately, we had to choose a CMS of preference back in 2015. 
and HubSpot came to our rescue with uh, HubSpot CMS, which is the ideal CMS for B2B demand generation because it enables a seamless customer experience on the outside and a single view of that customer on the inside, which are two critical things to achieve inbound demand generation success, inbound pipeline creation, ultimately. So technology is a huge piece of it. You want that customer experience to be seamless. You want the single view of the customer internally. And then you need a lot of the typical slash traditional inbound thinking applied. So great content, optimized for SEO, optimized for consumption, promoted effectively where your buyers are based on your understanding of them and so on. So it's inbound with a shift away from lead gen towards free consumption and continuing through the website navigation and content. No, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, Also, not my most subtle uh, means of nudging someone into talking highly about HubSpot. You know, I'm usually a little more, you know, delicate with that, but we just went, we just came right into it. So um, no, no, it's it's a good, it's a great point. And, you know, it really was fortuitous that HubSpot launched such a ideal CMS for our objectives, because at the point at which we sort of specialized on HubSpot CMS, We'd already been building a few websites on WordPress and getting the desired results, but that technology is not optimized for what we want to do, and it's not optimized for what our customers want to achieve. It's great for some Mm -hmm. things. It's not great for everything. And so HubSpot Marketing Hub with CMS Hub on top and all the other parts of the platform create a optimized infrastructure within which to do inbound demand generation. Yep. And I mean, it's it's to my understanding that having a CMS, right, powered and share a data set with your CRM, you had mentioned like the single view, right, to have the consolidated view of the customer journey, that's, that's deeply powerful, right? And Incredibly it sounds like especially powerful. for something like demand, uh, inbound demand generation uh, engagements, it, it, you feel that explicitly. Right? You need to be able to, you need to be able to serve that buyer at whatever point they come in at and whatever point of their process they arrive at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never seen an integrated stack achieve a truly seamless you know, flow of data like that. It's just not possible. So HubSpot's great from that point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there are tons of other benefits, you know, not least the managed, maintained, secured, updated infrastructure on which it's built, which are all things you have to do yourself at your own time and own cost if you're using, mm-hmm. you know, a range of other very popular CMSs. So it wipes out a lot of admin and overhead, which is great. It's optimized for the goal, which is fantastic. And it's part of a connected stack, which is yeah, incredible, really. Uh, let me ask you this. I have another question uh, about content. I'm going to put a pin on that for a second, just to keep talking about the CMS. Mm-hmm. For Blend, uh, are the right fits for inbound demand gen, uh, if you're opening up a conversation with either an existing client or a prospect, is the uh, kind of requirement that they be interested in HubSpot CMS Hub are already on CMS Hub or open to migrating if they're not. Is that a is that a key lever that, that you're going to need them to pull to do this? Well? Yeah, for us, because we know how to use that technology so effectively right. to achieve the end goal. Now, it's not a requirement necessarily to adopt the strategy, but for a blend customer, you know, we deliver inbound marketing aligned to demand creation and generation, websites aligned to opportunity creation on top of a platform that also talks to the rest of your business can be integrated if necessary. So yes, for a requirement to work blend. Yep. That makes sense. You now, so uh, we've talked a little bit about content. Uh, 
obviously moving away from this idea of like, well, you must gate content. You want to kind of actually lean now into free consumption other than removing gating from uh, premium content, high value content, just beyond just removing that. Uh, is there any other changes that, that you know, a, a business needs to make to the way in which that content's packaged or written or, or framed around the buyer's journey? Uh, you know, so what other changes does that have to uh, take into account, if any? So I don't think the changes are all that great other than this willingness to show it to the world, you know, without expecting anything in return. And that may drive you to improve the quality or the candidness of the content you create. I think, you know, one of the reasons buyers are staying out of the lead pool is because they've learned that the content they get in return is often fairly, you know, surface level stuff you know, sure. pretty yeah. pretty yeah. superfluous you know so it's it's only going to be effective if you truly delve into the topics that you're expert on and share your knowledge and credibility if you're using gating as a way to continue hiding your expertise from competitors and so on then that isn't going to fly that's not going to get you the results you want but ungating mm -hmm. is you know it's a simple change um it's not the total solution but it's a big part of it and if your content is, um, you know, truthful, based on your experience, based on your credibility, your capability, then it'll work wonders for you, public as well as mm -hmm. behind that form. Um, B2B buyers have got to discover you in the first place. They've got to find that content. And so we are seeing an increased need to think about how you get in front of them in the first place. Search is obviously a huge part of the buying process yeah but you can argue that like organic like seo is that what you're saying By search, exactly yeah. uh, and yeah. that's that's vitally important but there's you, you can argue that search only happens after some of the process has already been completed you know they're acting on something when they enter that search query so yeah. it's a good idea to explore linkedin and other social channels as a way of getting in front of your buyer before search even kicks in and starting to build some awareness or some affinity for your brand, you know, again, by prioritizing free consumption within those platforms, um, but before they potentially use search engines to get to your site and continue that research. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting framing in that by the time you start thinking about optimized pages and what a, a potential buyer might be searching Google, there's already a degree of consideration already happening there. And it's not just complete stage zero awareness happening. Uh, so Absolutely. I love the idea of how do you build brand affinity ahead of that? And it sounds like LinkedIn, is that organic? Is there a paid element? I think you had mentioned ads earlier, but is there kind of a paid element there as well? You can definitely leverage paid and organic. Um, you can leverage both paid and organic social and paid and organic search within an inbound sure. demand generation um, program. Um, they have their uses. And the important thing is always to just align yourself to what your buyer truly wants from you. And it's fairly easy to identify what that is by asking yourself what you want from suppliers and vendors when you know mm -hmm. they're trying to position themselves and, and market themselves and sell to you. And I think we we are a great example of how we should be marketing, um, you know, just thinking about how we go about our purchases. Yeah. Well, uh, Phil, let me ask you this too. Um, uh, our ideal client profiles, by, the, by, by and large, are remaining as anonymous as they can, avoiding hearing from us, right, as they continue to self-serve. Mm -hmm. uh, 
those that enter our lead pool, again, we've talked about might not be the best fits for our business, but uh, uh, does the actual engagement with your lead pool uh, change knowing that these preferences are there, right? Or it, it can't just be, we're going to run our same, you know, sales outreach, biz dev, you know, playbook uh, with this lead gen pool. Has that also changed? And, and what does that look like for the, the sales team or those responsible for actually connecting with, you know, these prospects? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, the people that are in your lead pool are so likely to be um, very, very far away from a being in a purchase making position that, you know, you're going to struggle with a lot of them. So I think it's being sensitive to that. Um, from a nurturing perspective, probably the best advice would be to focus on education, right? These people might be just coming into the industry. They might be just mm -hmm. starting to get into a position of influence or, you know, purchasing power. So, you know, education, as opposed to trying to artificially move them along the process, probably going to have the best results. And then segmentation. If, you, if your SDR team is still, you know, basically uh, going to be calling those leads, then segment carefully, you know, pre-qualify if you can and do your prospecting in an inbound manner, which is, uh, you know, on a base, on a footing of knowledge and care for that lead, as opposed to, you know, just volume-based greed. Yeah, lean on the context you may have around, about them and who they are and what they're caring about, right? To like lead that conversation. I, I think but so. Like, yeah. But for, for a lot of businesses, you know, the, the ability to phone a lead or nurture a lead into a customer, it's a really hard thing to get right. Lots of companies don't have large teams doing it, you know, well, because they don't have large teams. So gen leads are not bad. Generating leads is a good thing. Um, they're an audience that you can uh, communicate with over a long period of time, years potentially, and they can amplify your message. They can spread the word. They're a great thing to have. But if you also align your marketing and your, uh, you know, your website to the creation of essentially pipeline, your sales team are already going to be very busy. Uh, you know, they're going to have their hands full with people who have expressly demonstrated that they are ready and willing to talk to sales. So I like to think about, you know, we're driving up that number, keeping sales busy with people who are very, very high intent, very qualified and very keen and willing. And the leads, we can just let them be and, you know, let them spread the word, let them amplify the message, let them share our content, engage with us. And when they're ready, mm -hmm. they too will enter the pipeline. Yep. As we've seen, even in, in uh, you know, uh, uh, lead gen efforts of past, uh, it still correlates to hand raises at the end of the, the cycle, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It sounds like there's still a little bit of that. But to your point, uh, all right, well, sales, uh, lean on education, true education, right, for this pool. Uh, sounds like work on their timeline, not ours, potentially, mm -hmm. and then just really strategic segmentation, right, as a means of offering the right context and the right, you know, discussion points, etc. Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. Phil, let me ask you this too. Uh, obviously, at the top you had mentioned, hey, we're a data-driven organization. Uh, what uh, a, what do you look at uh, as a means of measuring performance for demand gen uh, efforts? Uh, and how does that uh, inform uh, or allow a business to optimize, right, the tactics within? So let's, let's, let's talk so, reporting a little bit. That's a great question because if you're no longer so focused on converting anonymous visitors into known leads, then one of your main metrics, leads, contacts, is, is, is kind of rendered uh, irrelevant. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So I think 
it ultimately, you know, everybody's objective is to generate revenue. And sure. so you should always be looking with your sales team at revenue. And a great precursor to revenue is pipeline and the amount of potential revenue. So I think that's another good thing to, to get unified around. Prior to that, up further upstream, um, there, there are multiple ways to drive demand, um, and some of them are outbound, right? So we, we firmly prefer the inbound methods, and I think to measure that, it's a good idea to define a uh, an agreed definition of MQL, mm-hmm. but but not the typical MQL that's a lead scored, you know, algorithmically yeah driven yeah yeah a behaviorally scored lead that probably isn't interested in purchasing it's a truly qualified high intent took a specific action to enter that sales process um you could use sales qualified lead you could use mql you could use anything if you're choosing but having a metric that reflects how well your website is producing those is a really good point to unify around um and ultimately, yeah, I mean, you're still going to measure how many leads you generate. You're just not going to be as focused on it. Um, and you're still going to measure how many visits your website receives. You're still going to keep an eye on positions in search engines. And you're going to measure your effectiveness on social platforms. But I think it's just making sure that leads generated takes a backseat to things that are aligned, if not in a directly measurable way, but aligned to that opportunity creation. Yep. I uh, love the idea of, of kind of rethinking the definition of MQL. It's like, sure, you'd mentioned behavioral kind of like inputs. And it's like, oh, how many emails, how many clicks, how many, and like mm-hmm. that'll, you know, there's a threshold and then that happens, it gets scored out. Sounds like you're setting, you're suggesting a higher bar for whatever that MQL definition should be probably shared ownership between marketing and sales but what what activities what actions represent the high intent that you'd want to be looking for for that designation? for us yeah for, for us it's only specific conversions on the website that demonstrate and indicate intent to purchase something so it's, it's yeah. consultations booked demos booked trials taken contact forms filled in it's got to be reflective of that visitor or that buyer's uh, you know need and want to talk to somebody about what you offer or to or to experience what you offer if it's a self-service SaaS solution um you know lead scoring is another thing which you know despite a lot of belief that it's a very very effective strategy there's not a lot of evidence for that. <laughs> and most people's lead scoring systems are a source of, are a source of frustration for, for their company. And they're quite often, um, I tend to say they've been gamed. After they've been running for a while, businesses tend to game their own lead scoring strategies because they don't produce the outcome they want. So, you know, you go back in and you say, well... What lever do we pull to inflate those numbers, right? Yeah. 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 And you say, you know, you, you spot the forms that actually indicate intent to purchase and you give them maximum points. So now it looks like some of your lead scored leads are high intent because they are, but it didn't do anything to change the accuracy of the behavioral scoring model that you've applied. It just added some people in that would have got through to sales anyway. So yeah, lead scoring is a tricky one. I love this um, sidebar teardown of lead scoring, by the way, <laughs> you know, but it's a great point in that it's not for at least blend in, in, in what you're saying. It's not about the quantity 
of uh, interactions they may have. And if that compiles, you know, compounds over time, the score goes up. It's no, it's true quality interactions and like the true concrete intent to be interested in purchasing, right? Consultations, demos, whatever that might be. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Those are, those are numbers that you can't flub, you know? Yeah, indeed. Exactly. Um, and another great outcome from adopting that sort of, uh, you know, approach is that you get that better alignment with sales. I mean, lots of sales and marketing teams are still, you know, completely disconnected and, and detached. Uh, you know, sales think they generate all their own opportunities, have no idea what marketing is going on about. Marketing think that sales, you know, drop all the leads they send them. If you shift your MQL definition to something that really reflects intent, both teams can totally get behind that. Yep. Is there uh, is there a learning curve, or is there is this a hard story to sell to a prospect, or maybe a client that's leaned heavily into lead gen? Now we're trying to pitch them demand gen. Uh, uh, is it a hard sell to pull back the quantity of leads as like the driving metric of success? You know, is there like a, uh, yeah. a culture of how do we how do we get on board with this? You know, it can be a hard sell, um, and if it is, it's normally for one of a couple of reasons. One would be um, you know, KPIs, you know, some marketing teams are uh, set KPIs by other parts of the business um, and they are to generate leads or generate MQLs in high volume. And that kind of urges you down the lead generation behavioral scoring route. And it can be hard to change those perceptions. You know, companies are sometimes, you know, slow things to turn around. There's also, you know, uh, there's a lot of, I'm trying to find the right word for this, but the marketing community holds on to some things very strongly, you know, and to say that they are not effective or not working when there are lots of people saying this is absolutely how you should do it, Mm -hmm. it, that can be daunting as well. So, you know, not everybody's, I suppose, ready to make a change. But if you've got a platform like HubSpot showing you where your buyers are coming from, what actions they're taking and not taking and where they're originating from and how they're getting to the point of talking to your sales team, it gets easier because you can actually hold up the data and say, well, conversion rate from lead to customer, zero point, whatever, you know, buyers into the pipeline as a result of content we've put out is X. It paints a pretty clear picture. Yeah. Well, I would imagine, again, we've pulled the gates off everything. So there must be some healthy amount of attribution to all of this content, everything that you're now hosting on your website for free, uh, you know, you're probably able to correlate or show, right? Or do you, I guess, I don't want to assume any, can you pull through uh, to impact on revenue for some of these things? So you you absolutely can sort of um, identify their their impact and their role. Attribution is a, is a funny area. Um, and what I'm about to say is not my own, work um but ultimately attribution that's built into systems like hubspot tells you a lot about how people got to you and took the steps leading up to the purchase and it's very good information and it's very good data because you need them to be able to do that increasingly easily remove that friction but as we discussed earlier a lot goes on before that a lot goes on in conversations with peers a lot goes on coincidentally, as they're scrolling through LinkedIn, a lot goes on outside of what can be attributed. So it's important to be aware of that and to factor that into your thinking. It's, it's, um, 
you know, the you tell me my LinkedIn ad didn't create a hundred percent purchasing intent. And nothing did, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Totally. Um, There's a lot that goes into it. And when a system like HubSpot tells you that a buyer came from search, that's important. That's useful information, but it's not the fun. It's not Mm -hmm. the whole story. Totally. Yep. That makes, uh, yeah, that's a, uh, makes a whole lot of sense. Um, Phil, I have, I have a final, final question. I'm going to just, we're coming up on time. So I'm going to put a pin on that one for a moment. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, If I'm, if I'm listening in today and I go, holy Toledo, I got to think about demand gen. I'm going to start rolling this out. I want to package this out. I got to start talking to clients. Is there uh, uh, anything you learned the hard way that me as somebody looking to roll this out tomorrow uh, can uh, uh, mitigate the risks around, right? Uh, did, did you scrape your knee on any aspect of demand gen that I can learn from? Was there a question you didn't anticipate from a prospect, but now you have a, a really you know solidified answer for? Any, any lessons learned along the way that I could action? I suppose that's a good question. I suppose, um, well, I think running an agency or working at an agency is constant learning through pain. But <laughs> um, what we do is in so many ways subjective, and yet buyer behaviors are in lots of ways quite predictable. What they won't do is very predictable. What they will do is slightly less predictable but it's important i suppose as you're creating a, a, an effective website for a client or you're building out a content plan you've got to balance the subjective needs and preferences of your client your internal people um and, and anyone else involved stakeholders i suppose with you know with clear thinking about what's going to achieve the objective what's going to get the result you know so so there are lots and lots of website conventions and best practices that are well worth following because they're effective at helping people navigate your site intuitively and sure. easily. And if it's not intuitive and it's not easy, that's that's what we call friction and that's what gets people going away elsewhere. So as you create these experiences, I think it's about striking the right balance between the unique, you know, subjective perhaps aesthetic application and the best practice that's going to help people achieve their task and, uh, and express their interest in what you have to offer. Uh, it's a very pragmatic way to. I, I appreciate the framing of that. Uh, let me ask this: I know we had a side, we had a sidebar tear down of lead scoring. Are there any uh, quote unquote website conventions or like aesthetic norms uh, that you you're sick of, or you know you you wish folks would stop asking for? Well, um, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but, you know, sliders have to die. That's, you know, that's <laughs> long been the case. Um, and I think most people are on board with that now, although it still comes up every now and then. Um, yeah, navigation has to be, to repeat myself, intuitive um, and yeah. device appropriate. So burger navs on desktop, go away. Um, and then something else that I think people do well to to strip out. I think a lot about content experience. When somebody arrives on your site and they're they're ready to read a piece of blog content or a piece of pillar content, the experience there is key. And all the stuff that you might traditionally see in the sidebar and around that content is distraction, and it should it also should go away because it just depletes people's ability to focus on that what you want them to see and read, which is your material or watch if it's video. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, get rid of all the stuff around that content. And the one that sticks is social sharing buttons, which hmm. 
a lot of people insist on having, but they would do well to get rid of them. And again, that's another piece of sort of research that was done a while ago, but it found that people who do share content on social tend mm-hmm. to have their own preferred ways of doing it. Yeah. They don't own... need the bun to pull through. They're like, no, I want yeah. to apply my own kind of context or thoughts to it. And yeah, they're going to go to their own platform for that, whatever it is. And they're going to share it using their own format, their own, you know, cause they want to measure their impact and so on. So yeah, although we think those social buttons are facilitating sharing, they're actually not because people who share already have ways to share that they prefer. And those buttons are negative on performance, negative on user experience, conversion rate, and all, all those things. Um, and then there's a negative social proof thing as well, which is if there's a big fat zero next to it, then also it true. actually right. deters people from sharing. So a few things you can strip away that are not exactly universal or ubiquitous today, but they still come up plenty. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for the quick website teardown. That's helpful. Uh, I have to look uh, on my stuff, make sure there's no social sharing buttons. Um, is parallax scrolling still in? Can I still have parallax scrolling in my, in my well, stuff? You, you can, you can still have it. Um, that, that, that does get some debate going amongst the design team and the dev team at blend. There's a time and a place for parallax. It's a, it's a useful visual tool, but don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. Fair. I guess that can be said about many things in life, right? For sure. Uh, Everything in moderation. Um, uh, Even moderation. All right, Phil, last question for you. Uh, We wrap every episode with this. Uh, What is the Uh strangest part of agency life? The strangest part of agency life. Okay, hold on. Hold on. We like to keep this yeah. one out of the prep sheet. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, you're going to have to cut this pause out because uh, it, it's it, the agency business model is a challenging one, period. Um, because what you're expected to do in what time and for what remuneration is usually, you know, quite a lot in, in mm. comparison. Okay, the strangest thing. Okay, I've got it. I've got it. The strangest thing about agency life is the fact that sometimes client attitudes pre-purchase shift dramatically post-purchase. So Hmm. pre-purchase, they're all about coming to you as an expert. They want to be challenged. They want to hear what you have to say. They want to be told what to do to get results. The minute the money changes hands, sometimes that completely goes away (laughs) and they no longer want to be told what to do, no longer want to have their ideas challenged, no longer want to be educated and led by experts. They want to lead the engagement. They want to get what they want done as a priority. And, you know, what that means is sometimes it's hard to enact your strategy. And I think a, a lot of inbound agencies would agree that, you know, Enacting the strategy is essential for success and success is essential for the length of the relationship. So when the position of the stakeholder shifts pre-purchase to post-purchase like that, it can create some very frustrating, challenging uh, situations um, that I think we'd all prefer, you know, didn't happen. So basically what you're telling me is clients just getting their own damn way too much, you know, and that's a, there's a strange wrinkle. Happen. There's a strange wrinkle. Yeah. Uh, I think, no? I think okay. it's, and it, 
that that change of behavior pre-purchase to post-purchase i suppose it's called buyer's remorse in some spheres mm. um yeah. you know it, it happens with a lot of things even as individuals consumers you know uh, your perception of something before you have it versus once you have, have handed over cash for it can change dramatically uh, and I it can produce some... even buyer's remorse or hey this is now it's a real investment i made so i want it to be to the liking that i want it to, you know or something there but it focuses the mind and mm, mm-hmm. that can produce a variety of reactions <laughs> uh well phil we are uh out of time so I uh, appreciate you coming on, uh, sharing your insights, your perspectives, helping us transition from lead gen to demand gen as a means of, uh, you know, meet, meeting prospects and potential buyers to where they are today, what their yep. versions are and what their pre- preferences are. Um, the role of a website in, in gating or not gating content and, and all the things uh, that fall within. So um, incredibly valuable, helpful. Um, so thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for everyone that's uh, tuned in today, this has been another episode of Agency Unfiltered.